So we're going to be talking about salvation a lot, and you know, that's okay, because really that's why we're here, right? Uh, without salvation, all this is just kind of worthless, we need to go home, but we've got Jesus, and so we're here. So this morning, we're looking at these two responses to the gospel. You may recognize this uh, from high school English, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost wrote, The Road Not Taken, and while really that's a, a metaphor for all of life, that's, a, just, that's how we handle things and hopefully that's how we take them as they come, it's also an apt metaphor uh, for the, our response to the gospel this morning. It's, it's the two choices, it's the, the two roads that we can take when it comes to the gospel. The Jews and Gentiles in Thessalonica and Berea had two choices when it came to the gospel, and how they chose would make all the difference. And I'll warn you, is, the, is it working right, Pat? Okay, I didn't think so. Uh, the, the font's a little off, so they're going to be working on that. So just uh, follow along as best you can here for a minute. Um, if you need the scripture, it's in Acts Chapter 17, Bible's in the pew rack in front of you, since it may not be on the screen for a minute or two. Acts 17, 1 through 15, tells us the story. Uh, it says, after they passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily if these things were so. 
Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions from, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So, this is after uh, the uh, little uh, kerfuffle in uh, Philippi that we talked about last week, where Paul and Silas ended up in jail, and the earthquake set them free, and uh, they had to have the official apology from the, the city, city leaders because of their... Uh, Roman citizenship, and now they've moved on. They've gone uh, southwest a little bit down toward Thessalonica. Thessalonica was probably one of the largest cities in Macedonia. It was the capital of the, that particular district of Macedonia. It was a major place. Paul was very uh, systematic in wanting to go to larger cities, the, the, the bigger cities, because this is going to be a commercial hub. He knows that if he shares the gospel there, and the gospel grows, they will reach people who will be traveling, and the gospel will spread organically. And he will reach many, many more people that way than just reaching a few here and there scattered across the countryside. So he's very strategic in what he's doing. So he goes down to Thessalonica, and in both cities, Thessalonica and Berea, he goes to the synagogue. Remember, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. There weren't enough uh, Jewish males in Philippi to make one. Thessalonica had one. Berea did as well. He goes to the synagogue in both cities, and that's where the similarities pretty much cease. And we read about it here at the beginning. And he went through Amphipolis and Apollonia, came to Thessalonica, went to the synagogue like he usually does. On three Sabbath days, so maybe three consecutive Sabbath days, maybe uh, one and then a, and a week off and another. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But he was intentional about going into the synagogue. And the scripture says he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then it says, uh, as, as a part of that reasoning, he reasoned is the, the, the verb, and then you get explaining and proving, which are the I-N-G words that are talking about how he reasoned. So we get three different verbs here on how he talked to them. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. And then it says, uh, this Jesus I am proclaiming, he's quoting Paul here, he preached. Paul was doing some pretty intense talking with these Jews at the synagogue. Hey, I've got this story about Jesus here I want to tell you. The Messiah who had to die and, and rise again in order to be the Messiah. Let me show you in Scripture how that worked. Let me take you through the, the prophets and, and the, the law and show you how Jesus is going to fit this picture, how this is the one, Jewish folks, that we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. We don't have to wait anymore. And he reasoned, and he explained, and he proved. And you get this impression. He's using, we, we see that he's using every rhetorical device that he has 
I mean, we get the picture of, of uh, one-on-one conversations, one-on-three or four conversations, him having to say, no, 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 it says right here, don't you see it? No, I know what you're talking about there, and, and how, you know, but look, Isaiah 53, suffering servant, look, Psalm 22, uh, they cast lots for him on the cross, look, look at all these places, don't you see, and, and the back and the forth, and it, it's wearing me out just talking about it. But do you hear the effort he put into sharing the gospel with the Thessalonican Jewish synagogue. That's redundant. The Thessalonican synagogue. Do you hear him work, toil over the scripture? Back and forth and probably some verbal jousting. And, and, and if we know anything uh, about uh, the, the folks who were against the gospel from their conversations with Jesus, you can imagine the trick questions and the way they had try, would try to twist what Paul said. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. That that's exactly what they were doing. And taking what he was saying. And no, no, that's not right. No, Paul, you're, no, you're just, here's what you're, and Paul, no. And, and uh, I tell you, one, um, on one outreach night years ago at a, at a church uh, we were at we knocked on we had some people to visit and we went to them and none of them were home so we just took the next door neighbor and we knocked on the door and we were we were in the uh, faith evangelism if you remember that and we went through the whole little deal and they uh they invited us in this older couple uh older i was younger so older is relative now um it's probably mid-50s which is getting younger um you're welcome, Tom, wherever you are. Uh, went in and come to find out that he was Jehovah's Witness and his wife was a, a convert from Catholicism to Jehovah's Witness. And uh, she didn't talk much. He did most of the talking. And as we would explain the gospel to them, and, and, and really it was a, more of a debate, uh, they, uh, they were fine with that, and we just we got to talk. About an hour we sat there and talked. And what I found was every scripture I would quote, every statement I would make, he would look at me and say, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he would repeat what I said, almost. But he'd change it just a little bit. A little word here, a little word there, where then I would go, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, 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 that's not what I said. And after an hour of that, I had a headache. Now, Paul was doing this in the synagogue three times, and I'm fairly certain it didn't stop in the synagogue. He had already set himself up now. He was probably, we've got Jason later on we read about and things going on at his house. So this was very likely ongoing conversations at least three weeks. He was just, I, I can imagine, he was frustrated and probably wanted to punch somebody. But what we see here is that evangelism may slash will I'm leaning toward the will part. Require effort. It's, it's great. It's lovely when you get that opportunity somewhere out and about. You tell somebody, hey, how you doing today? Oh, not good. I feel like I need somebody to tell me how to be saved with, through Jesus Christ. I've never had that personally. If you have, oh my goodness, that's awesome. Never had that come across. Evangelism is almost never like that. There may be those 
ripe fruit that are ready to be picked, but it always takes a little more conversation to get there. But most of the time, it's going to take much, much more than that. Evangelism will require effort. And then we see in verse 4, after all this effort, these three days and probably three weeks or more of, wait, no, not, not exactly what I said. No, let's go back to this scripture. Let's go back to this passage. We see some Jews, some of them, some of the Jews were persuaded. Now that some is a very strong implication of a small number. It's a small number of Jews that accepted the gospel. It's a small number of those closest to the gospel. Don't miss this. Don't miss that it's the very ones with the scriptures that prophesied about the coming Messiah and laid it all out. And what Paul's message here, he probably had a a number of points, but Luke uh, summarizes it by saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Explained to them, proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. So his sermon really only has two points. That... Uh, it was necessary for the Messiah to rise, to suffer and rise from the dead. Jesus is that Messiah because he did those two things. That's the two points of his sermon. Believe it or not, my sermon only has two points today. We just get to them at the end. Those closest to the gospel were missing the gospel. I think there's a lesson here that, we've, that is borne out over time. If you've if ever tried to witness to someone, those most resistant to the gospel will likely be those closest to it. How did we eradicate smallpox? Giving people chickenpox. They got close to smallpox with chickenpox. Actually, I think maybe it was cowpox. I don't know why we have so many different animal, animal poxes, but we do. Um, I think that was because it, it, what they discovered was the, uh, there was a milkmaid that get, got cowpox from uh, milking the cow, got them on her hand, and then she was around smallpox people and didn't get it, and some people started making a correlation. Hold on. Wait a minute. Is this a thing? Is this, is, and, and when they begin, that's where it started. She got very close. If you've had cowpox, you've gotten very close to smallpox, right up to it. You didn't have it, but you had it right up to it. So therefore, you didn't get it. It was an inoculation, right? When you go and get a flu shot, what do they give you? The flu. You realize that, right? When you get a flu shot, they're giving you the flu. It's a weaker strain. That's why they say you may feel sick a couple of days, you'll feel bad, take some Tylenol, take some ibuprofen, take it easy, you might even have a little fever, but you get really close, you get right up next to the flu, but you don't get it, and therefore you're not going to get it, well, so they say, therefore you're not going to get it that flu season. Those closest to the gospel, those who had all the information Those who had all the head knowledge, knew all the facts they thought, got right up next to who the Messiah was going to be. They saw him coming. They saw all the pieces and parts, and they squeezed right up to it. And then when they were told, this is him, they were 
inoculated to it. They didn't hear it. They missed it. They got right up next to it. They weren't infected. (laughs) Infected with Jesus. There's a sermon title. Those most resistant will likely be those closest to it. And you may have seen that in your own life. You may have seen that with family members. Family members that you knew went to church, grew up in church. They give a an idea of salvation, a a description that sounds kind of like it, but when pressed, there's no salvation there. Now, what we also have here is not just they were inoculated, but they didn't want Jesus to interrupt their lives. They liked their religion. They liked the the regimentation of of the day. They liked all the parts that they had. It, it, It felt fine. They didn't have to do a lot. They had the head knowledge, but they knew, I don't have to change anything really. Now, when Jesus shows up, when the Messiah gets there, we've got to do something different. When Scripture shows up, we have to adjust our lives to it, and they didn't want to do that. Many God fearing Greeks, though, did respond to the gospel. Many, some of those closest, many of those furthest away, who had come, had traveled the furthest to God-fearing, saw the scripture, heard what Paul said, and you know, that makes sense. Jesus warned the Pharisees it would be this way. He told them that those who have much to forgive are much more thankful for their forgiveness than those who think they have little to forgive uh, and, and, and their thankfulness for forgiveness. These folks heard the gospel and said, that's what I need. That's, that's what I've been waiting for. This is good. Just, it, there's a finish, right? It, there's an end. What's, and Paul says, Jesus. Jesus is the finish to this. And they, verse 5, become jealous. The Jews become jealous. And they become jealous because of a little passage we kind of skipped over. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Jealous. Notice the word Luke uses here. Jealous. They're not offended by the gospel. They're not refuting the message They're not arguing with Scripture. They're not doing any of these things. They're not upset that he would come in and twist God's words. They're not calling him a heretic and and pointing out his uh, fallacies in his interpretation, how he's not using the proper translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, how he's twisting God's words. None of that. They're jealous because a few people are now following Paul and Silas. They're losing their power. They're losing their position. They feel like they're losing their people. And they become jealous. And in becoming jealous, it says they stirred up. They brought together some wicked men. They stirred up the uncommitted. This, these are not Jews, best we can tell. These are, these are not church members or synagogue members in this case. These weren't God-fearing Greeks. These were the ne'er-do-wells that 
and loafers from around town that sat around, didn't do, any, didn't do anything, didn't have a job. They kept, kicked puppies when they walked by and pushed down old ladies and threw rocks through windows and, and petty larceny and beat up people for the fun of it. It was these guys, the ruffians, the, the, the ne'er-do-wells, the, the, the people who were jealous, the Jews who were so close to the gospel, who had all the scripture, said, we are so jealous, so infuriated by this message that we're going to take these people and make a mob and we're going to fight this. They took people with no vital connection to the gospel, to scripture, to the synagogue. They were just pawns in the leader's sinfulness. All to get back at Paul. And this is what they charged them with, verses 6 and 7. When they did not find them, they looked for them, couldn't find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials. Apparently they've been meeting in Jason's house. Maybe he was a new convert. And so these men have, who have turned the world upside down exaggerate much. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Apparently they've heard about what went on in Philippi. And Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, Jesus. Two charges here, disrupting the peace and sedition. Disrupting the peace, starting a riot. Uh, who started the riot? They did, the Jews, the ones who are stirring up the problem. These guys started a riot after we went out and got the people and stirred them up and told them, hey, let's have a riot. See what they did? And then they twisted the message of Jesus as king. They were accusing them of sedition, of, of speaking out against Caesar, which just the hint of that could get you thrown in jail. So they are making a huge accusation. Don't miss who is saying this. This weren't Greeks, friends, Romans, countrymen saying this. These were Jews saying there, he's trying to replace Caesar as king. The Jews couldn't stand Caesar as king. They would have never bowed to Caesar. As a matter of fact, that's why the Jews weren't very popular in Rome, Roman Empire anyway. It's because they wouldn't bow to Caesar. They would only bow to God. And yet they're the ones that are saying, he, 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 he's talking about a different king. Caesar's our only king, right? Isn't this reminiscent? Do we hear some echoes? We have no king, but Caesar, what followed? Crucify him. Crucify him. When Jesus was offered, him or Barabbas, would you crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the Sanhedrin cried. Crucify him. Twisted that message. Because Paul was never saying Jesus was going to take over Rome, take Caesar's spot. Yes, Jesus is going to demand our allegiance, demand his place as king. But Christianity has never been unable to fit in with a government, except where the government demands things that only belong to God. And that's one of the things Paul is proving by his actions here. Who started the riot? The Jews. The angry group. They twisted Paul's message. Now, I know, I know that's never happened to you. You've never said something and had somebody say, 
Oh, well, you know what they said, and you go, wait a minute, that's not what I said at all. Or, or it is what you said, but you, you think, it, wait, um, that's this much of what I said, and I said this much, you kind of missed it. I'll, I'll tell you an example, and I've not, not shared this uh, publicly before, but I think we're, I'm far enough removed from it that I can. Uh, a couple of years ago in a sermon, I shared about, uh, it was a, a sermon on race, and I shared a, a response to a, a, a relative of mine, or from a relative of mine, where he told me because of some of my other issues that he expected to hear someday that I support gay marriage. That's, that's the sentence I used. And then, period. And then I said, that's ridiculous. Homosexuality, homosexuality is a sin. Uh, gay marriage is a sin. I will never support that. Do you hear anything in those two sentences that could be taken out of context and, lab- and, and put on me? Did you hear what I said? He said that one day he expects to hear, I support gay marriage. That afternoon, no lie, I'm telling you the truth. That afternoon, somebody came to me and, who wasn't in church that morning and said, I heard you support gay marriage. And I said, I, I know the guy. So I, I, I thought it was just a deadpan joke. And I said, yeah. Really? Then I realized he was serious. And I said, no. Where did you hear that? Well, I heard this morning, I was told just a little while ago, that this morning in your sermon, you said, I support gay marriage. Technically, yes, I used those words. I used those four words, but there was a context before and a context after. So if you've never had your words taken out of context or twisted to say something, bless you. I talk a lot. If, if you, you, there is no telling what kind of sermon you could create if you just took clips, a few little words of what I said. A word here, three words there, five. I mean, Jordan, someday that's probably, that's going to be your next meme, I'm sure, of me. This, this random, outrageous, uh, unicorn-infested, uh, see, I just said unicorn, so we can use that someday. Uh, salvation experience through uh, Peeps and Cadbury cream eggs. I don't know. And that's what they were doing. They were taking this message and twisting it. And so we see the disturbance pushed Paul and Silas to out-of-the-way Berea. One, one uh, historian of that time called Berea out-of-the-way. And it wasn't really out-of-the-way. It wasn't small necessarily. I mean, it wasn't huge. It was, Paul was traveling on the major highway, the Ignatian Way. And he was going from uh, west to east. I mean, sorry, from... Uh, east to west, and he was probably, he had in mind, probably, I'm going to Rome. This call to Macedonia is just a bridge to Rome, because he wrote to the letter to Rome in, in uh, chapter 1, he said it, and then in chapter, I believe, 15, and, and he said, I've tried many, many times to come to Rome, and, and I've been prevented every time. Twice he tells them that. It's, it's probably that he had in mind, I'm, I'm going to go to Rome through this. And this out-of-the-way place in Berea well, what you might not know about history at this time is an emperor named Claudius. Right now, just a, probably a few weeks before he heads to Berea, Claudius had expelled all Jews from Rome. Paul couldn't have gone to Rome if he wanted to. As a matter of fact, he would have met Jews on the road coming toward him saying, don't go there, we can't, we're kicked out. Who knew that? 
God. God's sovereignty is working. He ends up in Berea. In Berea, it was different. Verse 11. The people here were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There's, there's no description of reasoning, explaining, or proving here, uh, but they weren't pushovers. No, no, no. They weren't snowed by uh, Paul's crafty words and his, his persuasion and all this, whatever they might have accused him of in Thessalonica. He just presented Scripture. And these were students of Scripture. The church, the synagogue in Berea, when he said something, they said, hold on. Okay? Keep going. At everything, they, uh, Paul preached a biblical message, and the people were active listeners. And it says here that they received the word with eagerness. They were excited to hear preaching, and they examined the scriptures. This word examined is a legal process. They put every word Paul said on trial. I don't have a lot more time because uh, we had the announcements, and we started a little bit late. But, y'all, everything I say... You should put on trial. You should be the Berean church. Anytime you see Berean Baptist church, Berean church, today, what they're saying is we examine the scriptures. They're taking the name of this church and saying we look to the scripture. That is exactly what you should do. I have a good friend who does that, and he'll call me or text me, or we'll go to lunch, and he'll say, now you said this. I don't think that's right. And and I'll say, well, I think I am. And he said, well, I'm not going to leave just because you're wrong, uh, and I appreciate that. I'm going to be wrong. But you should know that. If I say something off the wall stupid and has no bearing in Scripture, you should say, Michael, that's off the wall stupid and has no bearing in Scripture. And you know why you should know? Because you should be a student of Scripture. That's you. That's on you. Discipleship. And because they were students of Scripture, because they looked into it, because they weren't pushovers or snowed by his electric personality, Verse 12 says, many believed. Who? Many Jews. Many in the synagogue believed. Along with a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But verse 13, the opposition didn't give up. They had, a, had the bit in their teeth and they were going after him. Jealousy, anger, and bitterness. They seethe and they boil until you give it to the Lord. And they would not give up. These people could not rest while Paul was still in the area. He was about 45 miles away. But for them, that was still too close. They traveled to Thessalonica to stir up uh, unrest, to still incite hatred against God's mission. Because it wasn't about God. It wasn't about the mission. It wasn't about the gospel. It was about them. That's all it was about. Their hatred, their jealousy, their bitterness. And their anger, but it turns out they wasted their time because God was moving. The church was growing. I don't know if it's a coincidence or not that we don't have a letter to the Bereans. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, they all got letters. We don't have one to the Bereans. Could it be that they didn't need one? Paul left Timothy and Silas when he went to Athens. They stayed on and and, 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 and discipled, and the church grew, and, and you know what they did? They examined the scriptures. Silas said this. Well, it's in the scripture. I mean, I can see where he got that. All right. All right. Timothy said, yep, right, right there. 
their jealousy, bitterness, anger didn't stop the movement of God. So we have here now the two points of my sermon. We have the two stark examples of the response to the gospels, the gospel, from those with the familiarity with it. The Thessalonian synagogue had the familiarity. The Berean synagogue had the familiarity. In one response, we get jealousy, anger, and rejection based on a tradition more important than Scripture. Don't tell me what the Bible says. This is the way we do it here. Did I hit any toes? I didn't mean to. Um, Jealousy. They were determined that they would not respond to this message right up close. But they were immune. That's the first response. First stark example. The second, all the way at the other end, is caution, examination, and acceptance from those who allow the Scripture to speak to them. When we share the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our state, and from Texas east and up to the Mason-Dixon, when we share the gospel in the south, we will get these two responses mostly from our cultural Christian south. We will get people who are inoculated to the gospel. Dean and Sarah, you don't know him, he's a pastor in Florida, you probably don't know him, has just written a book called The Unsaved Christian. And it's all about the cultural Christianity, particularly in the south. And it's an interesting, I haven't read it yet, I want to, haven't gotten it, um, it's an interesting perspective from him because he is from Massachusetts. He's a Tom Brady fan. But he gets this right. He, he views it as an outsider and sees the inoculation to the gospel that so many of our friends and family members who grew up in church, who grew up with Ten Commandments at the courthouse, Ten Commandments on the wall at school, and say, I'm a Christian. They've never trusted Christ. This is our common response. And sadly, we're going to see the first one much more often than we see cautious examination and acceptance. But y'all, it's not just in our communities, neighborhoods, state, region. It's right here in this church. It happens in here, too. Do you continue to reject the gospel because you're a member of a church or you've heard it all before I got to have a conversation this week with somebody who was questioning wondering and I didn't know if my analogy was worth a hoot so I tried it anyway though because you know I talk and I explained that you can have and some of you may have heard the analogy before I can have mental assent knowledge that this chair is going to hold me. I understand the fundamental basics of a chair, and this has everything I need in, in order for it to hold me. See, I know it. I even believe it. I believe that if I sit in that chair, I will not fall. Believe it with all my heart. But do I really if I've never sat in it? Have I ever acted on that belief? I've got mental knowledge. I know the scripture, 
I understand that Jesus was the Son of God. Sure, he, he, he died and rose three days later, absolutely, and, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, I believe all of that. And then I find myself in the same category as what James says with the demons who also believe and tremble at who Jesus is. But are the demons saved because of their belief? No. They've never sat in the chair. It can hold me later. I don't, I don't need to sit down right now. I'm fine. I'm sure it's a good chair. and oh, Yeah, I mean, it's pretty even. And, and let's put one in the house. Be a nice decorative object in my life. It's, it's great, but yeah, I'm good, right? I don't, I, don't need, I don't need the chair. I don't need Jesus. I don't need salvation. I'm fine. This morning... Will you sit in the chair? Do you hear the scripture speak to you and you know it to be true? Will you follow the Bereans and say, well, what Michael is saying goes with scripture. It's time to turn our head knowledge into heart faith and sit in the chair and trust Jesus as your Savior. Today, maybe you need to respond to the gospel. You, you've never sat in the chair. God loves you, and he offers a wonderful plan for your life. He's got it all mapped out. But the problem is man is sinful and separated from God, and therefore we cannot know, he cannot know, and, and uh, uh, experience God's love and plan. Jesus Christ is the only provision for man's sin. Through him we can know and experience God's love, and plan for our life. But we must respond. We must individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We must repent of our sins, turn from them, trust Him. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. But only when we finally sit in the chair. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you've made it so clear. We have two roads to take. They, they diverge right here today for somebody. I can accept the salvation that I've heard about, that I know about, that I've been told about, or I can reject it. And I can move on. I can sit and try to keep up the, the facade, the demeanor of uh, salvation, of, of a cultural uh, Christian, but Lord, I know that I am uh, to use... Dean and Sarah's words, an unsaved Christian. I'm, I'm here, I, I've got the label, but I've never trusted you as Jesus, uh, as Savior. God, I pray for those this morning who will need to, to sit in the chair. I, I pray for those who are committing to share the gospel and the, the reactions that they will come across along the lines of the Thessalonians. Lord, we pray for a lot more like the Bereans. And I pray for the work of the gospel, that we will be willing to do it. God, speak to us each this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you need to respond to the gospel today. All of you, every one of you, has a response to make. Maybe it's for salvation. Maybe you want to sit in the chair. Maybe you've sat in the chair this week and you want to tell people about it. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need 
pray for strength to go to the Thessalonians, the Bereans, whoever it is God's calling you to go to and be ready for the response that you receive. Whatever it is, we all have something we can give to the Lord this morning as he works on our hearts. So let's stand, let's sing in this time of response, and let's do business with him today.